This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today. Off Scripts Time Capsule. Rating and ranking the years that have shaped us. I'm Robbie Greenfield and alongside me is Chris McCarty and Sona Rapani. Working our way through the years, we'll highlight world events, cultural achievements and the stories that have been forgotten. 1975, what kind of year will this throw up? A couple of great songs, a couple of good films as well mm. to look forward to. But we always like to start with a few random stories from the year. And um, I found this one. I'll ask you this. Is this the most niche invention of all time? Right. Because back in 1975, a bloke called Anthony Mond invented a glove specifically for politicians who shake hands a lot. <laughs> hey, which that is rather was, apt. In today's world, right? Well, exactly. I yeah. thought, yeah, it would have, might, might have taken off in 2020. Yeah. But in 1975, it proved to be a complete flop. He invented a glove with two steel ribs and the fingers left open for, and I quote, that personal touch. Oh <laughs> and he said of his invention, in 1964, so 11 years prior, it took him 11 years to come up with this, he said, I saw a photo of Lyndon Johnson wincing when a man gave him an over-enthusiastic handshake. And I thought to myself, how do you know it's over-enthusiastic from a photo? Uh, yeah, that's a good point. But if he sees the person wincing, clearly there's something not right. Well, with he might handshake. be wincing about something the bloke said. Mm, true. Yeah, true. Or he could have just been wincing at maybe some weather or approaching. Or I don't know. He spent 11 years conceptualizing yeah, exactly. this. Yeah, exactly. And he's gone out on a whim. He said, since I have also been a victim of some bone crushing grips after my accordion performances, I thought the glove was needed. Says Anthony. So he's an accordion player. He's an accordionist, yeah. He uh, gave the president his first steel glove. Ronald Reagan, Henry Kissinger, George Wallace, they were all given one, but the invention never caught on. Can you imagine a world where you could just send your weird invention to the president of the United States? Yeah. Yeah. You know? Somehow he managed to send his weird... <laughs> well, he invented it for him. It was specifically for him. Finger-peeping glove, you know? Finger-peeping, that sounds wrong. <laughs> An awful lot of levels, that somehow. <laughs> uh, moving on, this is a great story, this. Um, 50 paintings by 10 unknown artists were scheduled to be sold during a rat art exhibition okay. one day in rat 1975. Art. Rat art. The 10 artists were rats. <laughs> Okay, Dr. Richard Zimbalo, chairman of the Rosary Hill College Psychology Department, sponsored the exhibition to benefit the department's equipment fund. And he was confident that all paintings would be sold. One professional artist who viewed the exhibit, unaware of who had done the work, said the paintings showed obvious talent and promise. And that artist later said he wished to be remained unnamed. What the rats did was they grabbed the brush with their front paws through uh-huh. the cages and Chimbalo said that each of the artists had his own distinctive Come style. On. You know what's kind of tragic about this story is that these rats are raising money for their own research on themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Going deep there, Sono. Well, come on. Isn't that, that is quite tragic. sad? Yeah. It is, yeah. And they're creating art. Yeah. Apparently. Apparently these things were, they, they were good. But they went all unsold. I, I don't know what happened in the auction. So we don't know about that. There we go. Good story, Rob. Half-baked story. No, that's a decent little snippet, that. I yeah. love it. There's so many questions I've got for it. How much money was raised? Did the rats then get let out and to live their days on a farm? We don't know the answer to this. We just know that 10, 10 rats created art. And that's all you need to know. This and is 1975, Chris. Yeah. You know, you're not going to lose sleep over what happened to the rats. (laughs) No, you're not. I can rest assured you they're all, they've all met their maker. Yeah, that's fair. Um, Now, I'll ask you this. Is this an example of one of the most harmless crimes ever? 
Over the course of a decade, from 1965 to 1975, Joseph Feldman managed to steal 15,000 books from the New York Public Library. Right, let's crunch some numbers there. Ten years. 365 days in a year. Sorry, Rob, I interject. What, Continue. What are, you, yeah. what are you trying to crunch? What, what are you trying to figure out? I want to know out? how many books is roughly he's taking a day. 15? Oh, over the course of that period of time. Yeah, okay, it's, got it's it. It's taken a lot. <laughs> so well done, I don't have my calculator handy. He was caught when firemen entered his Greenwich Village apartment, which, while responding to an alarm in his building, discovered the books piled up. When asked why he had taken them, he simply he said, I like to read. Aww. Oh, bless him. Yeah. I the mean, value of the books was estimated at $125,000. You could always wow. just read and return them. I mean, I have an awe there, but a lot of people like to read and then just 4. return the books. 4.1 books per day on average. <laughs> he was pinching from That's the amazing. New York Public yeah. Library. It is incredible how he got away with that, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, at what point? 15,000 books is a lot. Yeah. yeah, that is. I've never been. How big is That's the a New lot York of Public Library? Yeah, it really is. How he got away with it for so long. And does it have a happy ending, the story? Did he get to keep the books? Or? I don't believe he did, but he actually had to rent extra apartments in the West Village specifically to store the books. It took 20 men, seven what? truckloads over three days to remove them all. He rented extra apartments. Do you know how expensive it is to rent an well, apartment in the back, West Village? Back, back then, it probably wasn't quite so pricey. Yeah, but back still, in the still more expensive than just than well, the, the value had, of those books. He might have been a wealthy man. Who knows? Yeah. Um, yeah he, taking out apartments just <laughs> to store books. Keep your stolen books. That is weird. Yeah, bless him. He said he was seeking knowledge and enlightenment from reading them all. And did he get it? Well, he got slapped with a, with a big fine, I would imagine. <laughs> and finally, for 1975, rather than installing expensive signs or speed bumps, in Napa, California, they experimented with using chickens to slow down <laughs> motorists on one of its streets, Streblo Drive, bordering Kennedy Park. What they did was they simply let eight... don't know why this number is important, but 85 chickens were allowed to roam the park and street at will. Said the park superintendent, Bob Pelusi... Great name. ...only occasionally does an errant driver charge through the flock... <laughs> In the nine months we've had the chickens on the job, we've lost 12 of them. <laughs> Gone in the line of duty, so to speak. Oh. So 73 chickens, unbeknown to them, <laughs> were the traffic wardens in Napa, California. Yeah, they were. I'm glad we've moved on. I'm glad speed bumps and speed cameras have taken over. Can you imagine that? <laughs> just, imagine you're that. just constantly driving at 20 kilometres an yeah. hour because looking out for a chicken. I mean, that actually sounds like the worst drive imaginable. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, whoever invented speed bumps, good job, whoever yeah. it was. Now, back in 75, there was no real thing, such thing as a summer blockbuster. And one particular film changed the landscape for moviegoers for the rest of time. And it was this. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. You're going to need a bigger boat. That is awesome. Great score. <laughs> Isn't it weird, though, how I think we like more kind of nuanced villains now? Or maybe there were nuanced villains back then, but this mindless 
killing machine. No, I agree with you. It's there, very sort of one-dimensional, yeah, isn't it? You had that pure evil, as if there could be such a thing, mm. versus pure good, Plus as it's if an animal. that could be a thing. At the end of the day, it's still an animal. It's yeah. not evil. Like, the characterization, I tell you what, Jaws has an awful lot to answer for. Yeah. And Peter Benchley as well. I mean, the amount of sharks that Haven't were, they said as much? They or have, they've admitted it. Peter yeah. Benchley has actually done some uh, conservation work because he feels guilty about the reputation that, that sharks were engendered with after the release of the film. Because there's some amazing accounts. I've shown you these accounts yeah. where these guys, are get, they're out with their drones in, in California taking footage of sharks very peacefully swimming around swimmers and paddle boarders and stuff. I mean, they're everywhere. You go out there in certain spots in the world where there are great white sharks, you go out, you're going to be surrounded by them. Yeah. And there's one attack a year, probably, maybe two. And that's usually a, a case of mistaken identity. So it was, it was a bit, you know... I'm noticing no, harsh. no facts, no notes in front of yeah. you there when you said one, probably two. two. Isn't it like 70? Is that about Globally, that, it? yeah, it yeah. might be 70. But think about that. They always say you're more likely to die from a bee sting. Is that what it is? Yeah. Statistically. Yeah, statistically, yeah. Anyway, a couple of um, little stats about this film, which, of course, did scoop the Oscars. Um, Peter Benchley had actually decided to call the book Jaws, but there were working titles before settling on, on what is now just such an iconic name for any film. Think of these. These were all on, on the kind of cutting room floor. The stillness in the water. Nope. Boring. The silence of the deep. Okay. Leviathan rising. Ooh. And the jaws of death. Ah, Jaws is... No, Jaws has that perfect simplicity. Quite, I do quite like the silence of the deep. Yeah, that one's Yeah, quite but that's nice. got nothing... You wouldn't know what that was about, would you? True. You know? That's because you're thinking of Silence of the Lambs, yeah. that kind of, like, <laughs> yeah. thriller aspect. Or, or Adele's rolling in the deep. Now, the shark does not fully appear in a shot until one hour and 21 minutes into this two-hour film. You see, criticism that we level at modern films is that yeah. they just... Unfold they just splurge everything. Yeah. Like, there's no delayed gratification. There's no build-up of tension. All instant, yeah. And part of that, I mean, you can give a lot of credit to Steven Spielberg there for that, you know, the hidden monster. But also, part of that is because the actual shark didn't work. Correct. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. They couldn't. They couldn't show the shark that much earlier than a, that because it just didn't really work. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> it was a mechanical shark that weighed about two tons. It was named after Spielberg's lawyer, Bruce Raymer. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, it kept sinking. It didn't really function all that well. And that's why they used those yellow barrels to signify its position. They came up with the plot where they were... The captain, oh, yeah, captain, they were shooting at the yellow barrels. Yeah, they were shooting the barrels to kind of bring it up to the surface. That's right. And that's where you could tell where the shark was without having to show the shark. Oh, that's very well done. Um, the other thing about it is the famous opening scene where um, the girl goes swimming and is attacked... Nightfall, you know, oh, the yeah. very, very yeah, famous yeah, scene. scene. They attached a harness to her legs, which they yanked and kind of pulled her, jolted her in the water back and forth to simulate this attack. And they didn't tell her which direction or where or when they would be like yanking on her legs. So the reaction was a genuinely Genuine. terrified one. Oh, wow. That's well done too. Obviously, if she's consented yeah. to that, of course. Uh, if she has, that's very good. It's very clever. Another film that was released in 1975. Uh, let us know what you think of this one, actually, guys. Go and tell your master that we have been charged with a sacred quest. Ah, blow my nose at you, so-called 
Arthur King. Now look here, my good man. I don't want to talk to you no more, you empty-headed animal food trough whopper. Your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries. Monty Python yeah. and the Holy Grail. Now I watch Monty Python now and it's not my thing. I do not think I this can, comedy is aged I well. I honestly say, Rob, I've never, ever, ever seen Monty Python. There are people out there who would tell yeah. you that Monty Python is the funniest thing that has ever been produced. But I think it's that kind of comedy you had to catch at a certain time and place and age. Mm. You know? And once you've missed that, like you said, it just doesn't age well. Maybe it was funny and the people that hold on to it for nostalgia. But I'm with you. I don't think it's funny today. Yeah. There's a scene in it. Uh, do you remember the scene with the two knights? I don't remember any scene because, again, <laughs> I've never seen it. You've never seen any Monty Python? Which, which scene no. with the two knights? Have you seen it, Zone? I've where, seen bits and bobs. Where he starts sort of having a fight with him and he starts chopping his limbs off one by one and he keeps <laughs> fighting and doesn't give up. Yeah. It's, co- it, it's done very comically. Right. And then he's just this sort of torso at the end. Okay. And he's still arguing and still saying, I'll take you on, keep coming, etc. And apparently John Cleese was inspired to write that scene from an elementary school story. He remembered about two Roman wrestlers during an extremely scrappy match. One wrestler finally tapped out only to discover that his opponent had passed away during the struggle, meaning he had posthumously won the match. John Cleese hated this and wanted to lampoon the quasi-sadistic tale in which... These sort of combatants mm. wouldn't give it, wouldn't give in under any circumstances. Mm. And that was the inspiration for Monty Python's that particular scene, which is a very famous one in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. There were other big movies that released in 1975. One flew over the cuckoo's nest with yes, Jack Nicholson. Phenomenal movie. Um, and Dog Day Afternoon with Al Pacino. One of one of Al Pacino's mm. lesser known, but yeah. one of his great roles, undeniably. It's time to move on to some of the best songs from the year, Sign. Before we do, though, there are a couple messages that have come in about the movies. And I had a feeling we'd get, after what we just said about Monty Python, I thought somebody's going to come to its defense for sure. Uh, listeners said, I know it's a different film, not 1975, but I defy even non-Monty Python fans to say that the life of Brian comedy has not aged well. In fact, the political satire and the discussion was 40 years plus ahead of its time. Hmm. I watched it. I also I watched some of it recently. And I just, I wasn't laughing much. Mm. To me, anyway, I, I, yeah, it's not my sense of humor, but I can see why it might be someone else's, you know, just to each their own on that front. But I I don't know. It's personally speaking, it's very dated, I think, that kind of comedy now. But, you know, I'm sure a lot of people out there would disagree with me. Um, Dog Day Afternoon says Anusha is a great movie, one of Al Pacino's best, loosely based on a true story, Mm, which I believe. Have you seen Dog Day Afternoon? I've not, but I do. It rings true, Anusha, that it is based loosely, as she points out, on a true story. And a lot of people actually saying, Chris, uh, if Chris has never seen any Monty Python, then he absolutely must watch Life of Brian. Why don't we do that? Let's have a little experiment. Chris Chris critiques. Chris critiques Life of Brian. You've got a week to watch it right fine is that fair okay fine give me a week so what's what's the date today tuesday okay a week a week today it's monday today isn't it (laughs) fourth track honestly next monday next monday okay that's seven days well done you so okay seven days from now i will watch life of brian and i'll report back all right okay that to come all right music then from 1975 we'll start with this one
because that's his favourite solo from, uh, and actually it was ranked, I think, the second best solo of all time. I think we did a, a recent. Um, that's right, we did. We did a recent feature on guitar solos and Brian May's solo in from Bohemian Rhapsody, and it's got obviously so many parts to the song, but that particular guitar solo. And obviously, I watched Bohemian Rhapsody. A lot of people listening to this show did as well. And you really do the movie. This is Rami Malek, and you do get a sense just what a genius mm. Freddie Mercury was. And, and Brian May, they all just got swept up by him. You know, mm. he said, "Guys, I want it higher. I want it higher. I want to add this. I want to add that." And he was the genius. A lot of people doubted that song record labels doubted it Freddie said nope this will go far and I think producer Roger will correct me if I'm wrong on this was it not critically panned when it first came out yeah it, it was and it gained in traction yeah. and it gained it that was, acclaim it was said to be self-indulgent yes, and kind of soppy and you know it, but it, it was the radio stations themselves that drove its popularity because they loved it and it is awesome yeah, I mean, it's one of those stories that makes you think if only we all had that kind of conviction mm-hmm. in what we did. Yeah. Or and actually, would not be in existence. <laughs> to this day, the meaning of the song remains unclear. Really? Yeah. Um, and they've actually, the, 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 the living band members of Queen have kind of respected Mercury's legacy by, by not really divulging any real details about the song. But uh, he said he'd prefer, Freddie Mercury said he'd prefer it to be interpretive as opposed to what he believes it's all about. And he said that the, the lyrics were nothing more than random rhyming nonsense when I asked like about that. it. I like that. Mm. Um, of course you've got a bit of Bruce Springsteen. Got a bit world. of Bruce Springsteen. Of I do. mean, 1975, Born to Run. From the churches to the jails To murderous silence in the world As we take our stand Down in jungle It's, so, it's such nostalgic music. How old were you, Rob, when you, your fascination with Bruce Springsteen started? Can I just ask that? About seven. I just want this image of Rob as like an eight-year-old with like the visor and oh like jeans up to his like, you know, chest and Singing just like the dad sneakers. Bruce Springsteen in the playgroup. No yeah. friends at that stage, I don't think. And Fanny pack on. Oh, my Lord. What a, what, a, what a scene. What a view that would be. Did you wear the fanny pack? No, I did not. Thank you very much. I don't know. There's something about Bruce's music that makes me feel very nostalgic. Of course it does, because your mum had it on in the school run. No, I, every I know, but, no, but it's, it's the music itself. It speaks to a kind of lost youth, doesn't it, these songs? Was and that's you, exactly what Bruce said. Was your youth in an lost? Yeah, it probably was. Where was it lost? It was squandered. <laughs> It speaks like this wistful voice. Oh, my lost Yeah, youth. but we all, we've all looked back. We all have that issue rumbling around. I we do. do. Yeah, of course. I know you, I'm sure you sometimes get all misty-eyed. I do. Reflecting on those days, those long Fockabers evenings, <laughs> summer, kicking the ball. Kicking Listening the ball. to Enrique yeah. playing exactly. FIFA exactly. champion manager. Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. Exactly. <laughs> I like how you're pretending like it's him running but around kicking amazing? the ball like, outside. A guy, a guy that's writing songs specifically about life in New Jersey it's translating to everyone's experiences. All the way to Buckingham. Yeah, exactly. Shire. Who would have thought that Bruce could resonate with someone who grew up in Chalfont St Giles? <laughs> and yet he did. The Charles Blessing, massive. Yeah, well done, Rob. Well done, Brucey. Uh, right, now this next song, we're not really at liberty to discuss what this song is about, but I'll play a little clip of it regardless.
One of the great riffs, though. I am One of the great riffs. enjoying transporting you, Robbie, to the mosh pit there as Robbie was oh. on the ones and twos. You love that song? Uh, that's great. And that's the original. Of course, it was, re, it was re-released with, I think, Run DMC. It was, was yeah. Was it not? Yeah. Um, but that was um, Aerosmith, Walk This Way. Uh, again, can't really get onto the details of what the song's all about. But um, they came up, Joe Perry came up with the guitar riff for the song and the band developed the track around it. Four days later, huh. they still didn't have any lyrics and they were considering actually dumping the track. But inspiration struck them when they went for a little walk around New York City and actually saw a movie, Young Frankenstein, playing in Times Square. And it was actually a comedy starring Gene Wilder, who was Willy Wonka in The Chocolate Factory. Famous scene where Igor tells Dr. Frankenstein to walk this way. And they were like, that's the name of that song. That's mental. And there you have it. Um, What about this one? I know we're big fans of Fleetwood Mac. And in this year, Stevie Nicks with uh, her then boyfriend, Lindsay Buckingham, wrote this. It was ultimately going to be a record that was released by Buckingham Nicks. But they joined Fleetwood Mac and they recorded it with them instead. varied music out in that in that time so it was hard rock there was kind of like you have to go some to beat Fleetwood Mac Fleetwood Mac no matter the day the time you stick Fleetwood Mac on immediately you feel happy Stevie Nicks voice too there's just a magical quality to her singing now I think Chris is going to be a big fan of this next one I I just I just got a feeling and and I'd be interested to see what you actually have to say about it it's Roxy Music Love is the Drug Thoughts, Chris? Yeah, I like it. It's bright, bright it, it, it appears on a lot of Martin Scorsese film scores. Does it really? Yeah. Pretty sure you'll hear it on Casino. Really? Yeah. Oh, that would be... That would stump me a quiz question if that came up. Mm. I love Casino. Don't recall hearing this song, but it's awesome. Yeah, I, I love it. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard this song before, and I'm really digging it. It's really good. Yeah. Yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah. And um, I've saved, uh, well, certainly one of the more enjoyable songs till last. Um, again, a lot of sort of deep resonating music in the mid-70s, but certainly this band Kiss and this oh. song Strutter would not fall into the deep and meaningful category. says on the tin it's basically about ogling women in New York (laughs) 
resonates with you, does it? Or? No, I mean it's <laughs> no, not at all. I'm just I'm just imparting that little piece of information in about the song. It was originally called Stanley the Parrot. Not entirely sure why, but they changed it to Strutter. And this song, specially popped in by producer Rog, this came out from the eponymously titled album Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd, one of my favourite albums. This is a 1975 release as well. Let's get on to the sport. It was the first ever ICC Cricket World Cup held in England, Chris. Absolute scenes at the conclusion of this match. Are you aware of the historical context uh, well, of it? I know that West Indies, of course, they, they won it. That's a good quiz question. The West Indies were the first winners of the ICC Cricket World Cup. I know, who did they beat in the final laws? They beat Australia. Take a listen to these scenes as the winning wicket was taken. gathering the sacred stumps the charge of the brigade over a win for West Indies here by 17 runs an unforgettable scenes here at Lord's Cricket Ground at the end of one of the greatest ones there were, I kid you not the entire attendance that day had descended onto the pitch I think it's many people it was literally they think it's, and the cricketers were running for cover <laughs> from in the middle they didn't have time to celebrate they were trying to dodge an onslaught of people can you imagine that happening today well it does there, there was 10,000 people on the pitch yeah it does it happens though still if a team stays up on the last day of a football season or if a team wins you will see fans flock onto the pitch not alien that in cricket though I don't associate <laughs> yeah, cricket with that particular You're absolutely right. kind yeah. of enthusiasm no. 
Absolutely not. Um, I need to go back and watch that National Fight, Rob. Mm. It was West Indies that beat Australia, yeah. right? Yeah, it was a, a final run out. Australia fell short. I think West Indies have made 291. Australia, in their chase, made 274. Mm. And it was the first ever World Cup. They played in their whites. They played in their yeah. test whites. There was no such thing as a one-day kit back mm. then. Uh, yeah, amazing scenes at Lords, the home of cricket. In football, Bayern Munich beat Leeds. 2-0. 2-0 to win the European Cup. France, Roth and Gerhard Müller. Mm-hmm scored the goals there Jack Nicholas won the Masters and the PGA Championship for his 13th and 14th majors he was the leading money leader on the PGA Tour with $298,000 earned you'd earn that for a 15th place finish at the WGC event these days that's insane that's the case 200 yeah what are you getting what did Paul Casey did Paul Casey not walk away finishing 12th in the recent DP World Tour Championship 110,000 something like that yeah some, yeah, in one tournament. He was the entire season money leader on 298,000. And get this, actually, the Ryder Cup took place in 1975. It was still a contest between the US and Great Britain. That's right. And the US team were dominant. They actually, and I actually just pulled a few names from their team that year. They beat Great Britain 21-11 in the Ryder Cup. And... Among their team, Jack Nicholas, Tom Watson, Arnold Palmer, wow. Johnny Miller, Tom Weisskopf, Lee Trevino and Ray Floyd. Is it little wonder that they won it so convincingly with that roll yeah, call? Yeah, that, that would have been up there with the class of 21. I That's think. remarkable. Nicholas, Watson and Palmer <laughs> and Trevino. Wow. Off Scripts Time Capsule. Rating and ranking the years that have shaped us. Thank you for listening to The Time Capsule. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate it, and please do, if you've got a moment, give us a review. This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today.